thanks for connecting with our online content at Holy Trinity Church in Richmond. We really hope that what we share with you will be a blessing and will help you to continue to grow in your knowledge and love of God. Some weeks when you are preparing a sermon, you sit very easily with the text in front of you, and some weeks you tremble and quiver. This has been one of those second weeks, because James chapter 2 doesn't pull any punches. It is hard teaching for us to hear. It is very hard teaching for me to give. If you're a visitor, I'm really sorry uh, that you are hearing a difficult part of God's word with us this morning, but I pray that it will be an encouragement to you anyway, as he works through it by his Spirit. Uh, Last week, we began a five-week series through the book of James called Test of Faith. And as I opened this book, I compared our faith in Jesus to a precious diamond. We thought about our faith as a beautiful, stunning stone of great value formed under immense heat and pressure. As we think about diamonds, we know that they are different. Some are genuine and others can be faked. James is interested in the tests which show the genuineness of our faith. He exhorts Christians to consider the trials of life, the heat and the pressure which come our way as complete and pure joy because they provide opportunities for us to endure in our faith, proving its genuineness and allowing us to take hold of the wonderful reward that he promised, the crown of life in chapter 1 verse 12. That is eternal life, life with God forever. In this series, we're going to think about the same tests that define the value of a diamond. I don't know if you know if you remember them from last week. The first was the cut. We're going to think about the cutting words that roll off our tongues. Do we control our words? We'll consider the colour. Do we have a coloured view of the poor? We'll examine the clarity of our faith. Do we keep ourselves pure and flawless from the influences of thought and worldview which aren't compatible with Christianity? Those key tests are the tests for the quality of diamonds, cut, colour and clarity. And those are the tests that we're going to apply to ascertain the quality of our faith. As we do that this morning, we're going to consider the issue of favouritism in the life of the church before we move on to two types of faith. Faith that believes and faith that deceives. We know where we're headed, why don't we pray? Father God, we thank you that you've preserved the book of James and the canon of scripture and that your spirit will and does speak to us by it. Lord, this morning we're sitting under a hard word which goes to the heart of whether our faith is genuine or not. Lord Jesus, we ask this morning that as your word tests us, your spirit would encourage us. We pray that you would help us to live out a faith which is genuine, that we might take hold of the crown of life. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory alone. Amen. Well, the first test of faith that James highlights, he set three out at the end of chapter one for us, is the test of colour. Do we have a coloured view of the world when it comes to different people? Off the bat, in verse 1 of chapter 2, we get a strong imperative, and the book of James is about a third imperatives, things that are telling us what to do. He says, believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ 
must not show favoritism. Now, I think James probably knows our tendency to nod and to say, of course not, or shake our heads and say, of course not, that's not us. We know that we shouldn't show favoritism. And so he sketches a scene for us. He wants us to imagine that our church is full to bursting and there's only one seat left. Now, I imagine if this place was chocker and there was only one seat left, it would be the one down here next to me because nobody wants to sit in the front row, right? Especially not next to the bloke who's going to be getting up and preaching soon. And as we sit and wait, the service kicks off and two men come in. One is looking pretty good. He's in a nice suit. He's got good hair. His moustache is glorious and beautiful. His shoes look good. He's wearing a good watch. But the other person that comes in at the same time is the sort of person that you smell before you see. Their clothes are a mess of holes. Their hair is matted. Their face is covered in stubble. They don't look like they fit in any respectable community, let alone a church one. We know who's going to get escorted up to the front by an usher and sat next to the minister, don't we? We know who is included and who is going to be excluded and told to stay at the back. Sometimes you see it after church at the cup of tea. Some people are in and some people are out. Some people are surrounded by conversation and friends while others sit alone hoping that someone will notice them and come and talk to them and share some kind of time with them. Naturally, we gravitate towards the person who has the ability to do something for us. The last thing we want as we go about our everyday lives is to be entangled in the affairs of someone who is needy. That inconveniences us, doesn't it? It disrupts our plans. It disrupts our ability to do what we want to do when we want to do it. Looking to the needs of the poor and the needy is costly and it is messy. But the rich spending time with them makes sense in our world, doesn't it? The rich can do something for us. They can connect us if we are trying to get forward in business or start something up. Spending time with them will be interesting. They've no doubt got great stories about travel and interesting, exciting places they've been. Maybe they'll even share their holiday home with us or take us for a ride in their flash car. Maybe they'll take us out for a lovely meal and fine wine. Rich people can do something for us. James knows our hearts. He knows where we gravitate to. He knows that even when we are gathered for divine worship, we show favoritism in our meetings. Even as the gathered people of God, evil desires spring up from our hearts. And so we show preference for others. We show preference for the ones that have made it, for the ones who have influence, for the ones who can do things for us if we have their favour and friendship. That's part of the reason that I don't have access to your giving information. Because in the church, we've observed this tendency. The vicar ends up spending time with those who can do something for them. The vicar ends up spending time with the people that can make a generous donation for the new roof. The vicar ends up hanging out with those people and being influenced over those who are poor and needy and really need their time and their help. The vicar is susceptible to favoritism. We are all susceptible to favoritism in the life of the church. So James outlines that sketch for us and he shows us through it that there are two types of faith. There are true believers there are those who have taken hold of the crown of life, those who are not just hearers of the word, but are doers of the word. They are the people who have trusted Jesus as revealed in the scriptures through the apostles' teaching in the Old Testament, 
and they put that teaching into practice in their lives. So that when the poor person comes into the meeting, they view that person as someone who is worthy of their attention, worthy of their time, worthy of a seat. They get caught up in the affairs of the poor, meeting their needs with compassion and kindness and generosity. Their faith is genuine and we see it in what they do. In a moment of testing, they see the trial of the poor person coming and asking them for help and they do what they can. It might not be much, but what is given is given freely to the glory of God. But the other group, the other group he tells us are deceivers. They look like they have faith. They know the right things to say. They turn up to a Christian community, but their tongues and their lack of generosity, their lifestyles which run after the things of this world show that their faith is dead. It's all talk and no action. It's skin deep. When we enter those tests, times of testing and trial, we show our true colours, church. We show our cut and our clarity. Genuine faith changes how we live. It compels us to live like Jesus. When a deceiver comes across someone in need, in that moment of trial, a moment when they could respond like the Lord Jesus who welcomes the poor in spirit, the ones who are spiritually bankrupt but humble themselves to seek his mercy and forgiveness. They respond, when they could respond like Jesus, who offers welcome and love and care and salvation to those who are in eternal poverty and distress, the deceiver shows favoritism. When the deceiver sees someone who is hungry or cold, they say, you need to get something to eat. You're cold, you need to go and buy a coat. But a genuine believer, shaped by the word, seeking the wisdom which comes from above, produces fruit of generosity towards the poor and needy. They're able to push off the influence of the world, which encourages us to look on the downcast negatively. Have you noticed the narrative of our age? Our world tells us that if you are poor, you are less valuable as a person. That if you are a poor person, that is because of your bad choices or your laziness. The world tells us to keep our distance in case we become embroiled in the needs of these people. Attending to the needs of the poor will be inconvenient. It will interrupt our plans. It will cost us, the world says. And that's true. Attending to the needs of someone who is lonely or ill will take our time. Attending to the needs of someone who is hungry will take your food. Attending to the needs of the cold will take your clothing. I think as Kiwis we have a cultural barrier here which makes it even harder for us because we have to go against the flow of our wider culture, not just in terms of that messaging, but in terms of how it helps. See, we live in a socialist country where we have an expectation that the government will take care of those kind of issues in people's lives. Have you been down to winds yet? That kind of cultural attitude says, it's not my problem, go and get help, someone else will look after you. Those are hard things for us to push against, aren't they, church? The idea that to step alongside someone is an inconvenience, that it's costly, that it's a sacrifice. If we love like that, that's going to be flying in the face of our culture. 
If we love like that, that is going to be evidence of God at work changing our hearts and helping us to value what he values over what we naturally want. I wonder if you remember the third test that James set for us last week. That idea of keeping yourself free from the polluting influence of the world. Well, here James in his little sketch shows us that that polluting influence is alive and well in the life of the church. It's alive and well in the lives of people who come along, who listen to the sermon, who sing the songs, who give their money, who stand up and say the creeds together, who claim to believe in God, but demonstrate that they haven't been justified by true faith in Jesus. Church, here is the warning. It's in our midst that favoritism happens. It's not just something out there. The wealthy man is given the last seat. And the poor man is told to sit on the floor or stay down the back. Churchgoers choose not to get entangled in the mess and the muck of helping someone in great need. And they send them away cold and hungry. What good is that kind of faith, James asks? He says it's no good. It's not saving faith. It's not the faith which is stamped with justification. It's not faith which is genuine. It's not alive and shaping the believer to have the heart of God. He said it is cold and dead. It is lifeless. It looks very respectable. It uses the right words. It turns up to the church meetings. But it makes no difference in the life of the holder. It only condemns them as if they've broken the whole law. It is powerless to save. It is as powerless to save as works without faith. There is a kind of faith in the church where people turn up and participate and say the right things. They may even affirm a good deal of what they hear on a Sunday morning. There are people who say, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, but their life doesn't show it outside of Sunday morning. There are people who say, I'm a Christian. There's a verbal profession, a claim that this faith is the genuine article. They say that it's a beautiful jewel. But when it's tested under the microscope, the substance isn't the same. It's the kind of faith the demons have, James says in verse 19. They acknowledge that God is real. They believe in him. They believe in Jesus. And they shudder because they fear the coming judgment. But genuine faith changes how we live, not just what we think and know. It compels us to live like Jesus in the power of his spirit as we work out obediently the call to us in scripture. A faith that's on our lips but not in our hearts and hands is not going to save us. And neither is a truckload of good deeds without belief in the Lord Jesus. James has heard it all before. Look at verse 18. Some say, you have faith, I have deeds. Well, I think most religions agree with that statement. The majority of the world's religions allow you to earn the favor of a God. You can earn salvation if you do more good stuff than bad. I'm so thankful that's not the message of the Bible because I would be shot. I'm only 38 and I don't think in the rest of my life, even if I make it to 80, I could do enough good stuff to outweigh the bad stuff I've already done. I'm a parent for crying out loud. I'm a husband. I'm a minister of a church. The list of stuff that I get wrong just keeps stacking up more and more every day. Can't earn salvation by doing more good than bad. That's not the message of the Bible. 
In the Bible, we are marked out as true believers when we accept the good news of Jesus as handed to us by the apostles. We can't earn salvation by our works. And Paul and James both agree. But our works prove that God has done the right thing in declaring us as justified. Our good works demonstrate the power of God at work in us by his spirit, the change that he is working in us. It shows the depth of our trust in saving faith. Trust like that of Abraham, who trusted God so much that he was prepared to sacrifice his only son Isaac. Now Abraham believed God and the promises he had made him. In the absolute depths of his being, he believed that God was going to make a nation from him and that he would do it through Isaac, his son, even if he sacrificed him and offered him up to death. And so he acted in obedience to the word of God. He loaded that donkey. He took the coals. He bound his son. He lay him on the altar and he lifted the knife to strike him. Because of his faith, he acted. Genuine faith changed how Abraham lived. Now, hearing this can cause some Christians alarm. We get nervous that a suggestion is being made that we might be justified by our works. Our deeds won't save us. Our deeds or our works don't save us, but they prove that we have saving faith in Jesus. They prove that we trust him more than ourselves, that we love his way more than our own way, that we're following his way of humility and emptying ourselves for the sake of others. Our works are evidence that we believe and accept that Jesus is Lord, and it's that confession which saves us. Our works of love and charity and kindness show that we deny ourselves, that we take up our cross, and that we're following Jesus. That kind of faith is an active, sacrificial, costly, Jesus-way first faith. That is the faith that makes us heirs of the kingdom, James tells us in chapter 2, verse 5. But there is a faith that does not work and cannot save. James has already told us that. We must be doers of the word and not only hearers of it. Paul says the same thing. It's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous, Romans 2.13. Obeying, putting into action, carrying out, being doers of the word to our great inconvenience and cost to the confusion of our world, is genuine faith. And genuine faith, the real article, the precious gem of unknown value, is faith that changes how we live. It's faith that compels us to live like Jesus. What good is faith that has no works? What good is a church service where worshippers mistreat people that God has commanded us to love? What is the value of that worship? Sure, we can say the right words. We can sing, we can make sure we have a kid's talk. We can have a wonderful connection time over a cup of tea afterwards. But that service of worship can be useless if our faith is on talk. 
What is the benefit if someone claims to live by faith in God, but refuses the way of life that God requires of the true Christian? What is the benefit if someone says, I've been baptized, I've been confirmed, and I keep away from the major sins, so please just let me live out my faith as I see fit. Don't make it too demanding. Don't make it uncomfortable. Keep it light and upbeat. Church, there's no benefit to a faith like that. James says that by our actions, we show them that we are condemned, that we are lawbreakers. Not truly living as if we had taken hold of the rebirth which comes from the word of life, chapter 1, verse 18. That kind of faith isn't really faith at all. It builds a self-confidence in us which denies the gospel and condemns us. Today, some of us might be hearing what James says and realizing for the first time that we've been living a faith that's a bit like that. A faith of words, but not action. Maybe some of us are realizing it for the very first time. Maybe some of us are realizing it, that it happens to us all the time, that we live a life of words and not action. And that can feel heavy. But church, remember that we can turn to Jesus. We can ask God for the wisdom that comes from above and seek rebirth in him, chapter 1, verse 18. He will not turn anyone away who humbles themselves, acknowledging their flaws, their brokenness, and failure. That person, that person who humbly trusts in Jesus will find true faith. They will find saving faith, which has integrity when it is tested. They will find saving faith, true faith, faith in Jesus. A faith which changes how we live and compels us to live like our Lord. Shall we pray and ask for that kind of faith? Lord, sometimes your word is hard. Thank you that you put us under the microscope and you test us. Thank you that you love us enough to discipline us and bring these things to our mind to show us our failures so that we might see the glorious riches of salvation in your son Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would help us to continually seek rebirth in him that we might take hold of the crown of life and live with him forever and ever. Lord, we ask today that where we have failed to be the people that you have called us to be, where we haven't fed the hungry and haven't clothed the poor, that you would be at work in our hearts. Lord, would you please help us as individuals and as a church to be generous towards the needy, to be inconvenienced and in part of their mess and muck so that they might be drawn on and strengthened in the Lord Jesus and that we would prove the genuineness of our faith. Lord, we ask that by your word, your spirit would be at work in us, showing us more and more how we might live like our Lord. By your spirit, please compel us to live his way. We ask in his name and for his glory. Amen. If you'd like to connect with more of our online content at Holy Trinity in Richmond, you can do that by going to our YouTube page simply by searching for 
Richmond Anglican Aotearoa. You can also touch base with us online at our website or on Facebook by searching with those same words. Friends, we're so thankful that you've joined us online and that you're enjoying our content. We really do hope and pray that God is blessing you through it. If you've got any feedback, you can touch base with me, zane at richmondparish.nz. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.